Hi, welcome to Night Clerk Radio, episode 17. John Carpenter, the man, the myth, the legend. He is mostly known as a movie maker, but his music is certainly worth talking about. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Burke and I have both been looking forward to doing this for a while now, I think. Absolutely. This is going to be more of like, I guess, sort of an overview of uh, an introduction if you're not really familiar with his work. Probably most of you listening to this are, but we'll sort of go over his movies, but also the audio legacy, the musical legacy of John Carpenter, because uh, even though he stopped making movies about 10 years ago, he in the last five years has started releasing albums. He's released two albums and uh, we'll be talking about them, but just sort of an overview of his influence. Yeah. And also, of course, this is being released in time for the official spoopy month of the year, October. Hopefully you've seen at least one John Carpenter movie this month. And if not, you should. There's still time. Oh, yeah. That's really early. <laughs> like right after release. <laughs> if you're a release listener, you got like five ish days to mm-hmm. cram the thing in there. If you already watched the thing this month, just do it again. Just watch it again. Well, you it's can watch so it. Good. It is so good. But I mean, <laughs> maybe you want to start with Halloween. Well, mm. Mouth of Madness, yeah. I think, is also very underrated. Yeah, I think it's definitely the most underrated of his movies. Um, I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, and yeah, it just, wow. I kind of want to rewatch it again to think about it. So we should probably talk about the man first a little bit to give you sort of an idea of who he is and where he came from and what his uh, biggest works are. We kind of mentioned a few of them, but, you know, he's done a lot. Yeah, yeah. You kind of did a little more research on this end. Yeah, I sort of stumbled across. I think we both did a fair amount of reading and listening for this. But Mm -hmm. one thing that was most surprising to me coming out of interviews was how musical his actual background was. Mm -hmm. His dream was always to make movies, Mm -hmm. but music was a consistent force in his life uh, ever since he was a child. Mm -hmm. So his dad was a PhD of music, was the dean of music at Western Kentucky University. And really tried to teach Carpenter all these instruments like violin and piano and guitar and stuff. And eventually just through uh, the rock music of the 60s and mm-hmm. his childhood is kind of what got him to be like, well, OK, I'll at least sort of play guitar. That's kind of fun. It sort of clashes because uh, one of my favorite things about Carpenter is that in interviews, he's all like, oh, gee, shucks, man, I'm just banging keys out there with my <laughs> my son. We're just, you know, just banging whatever comes to mind. But I think he has like. Even if he's not aware of it, he has a much stronger background. I think that gives himself credit Mm -hmm. because his music does have really interesting aspects and you can all trace those. If you ask him about it directly, like if you ask him specific questions, he's a nice guy and he'll answer them. So you can, you can tease these inspirations out. Like he talked about like this bongo piece that his dad gave him being the inspiration for, for Halloween because five, four, and he really liked it. So stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's real interesting. John Carpenter's got like such a wide lasting influence, but like that the arpeggio of Halloween is like that. If that was the only thing he'd ever done, he'd just been a composer and just did that. Like he would still have fans to this day. Like that alone Mm -hmm. is career making. I just want to have that little bit of Halloween in there. So just in case you were, it didn't instantly come to mind uh, mm-hmm. when we mentioned it, because it's been used so many times in pop culture. I kind of want to give you all that little thing. Jack Carpenter does really have this kind of like, 
effect of being like, yeah, I'm just working class. I know what I like and that's what I'm going to do. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of hides a very high level of sophistication of skill and knowledge. I think when looking back at all his work, especially like in his golden years of his career, the 80s, I, I sort of realized he's kind of like this nearsighted visionary. He always saw what was coming next, but he was only seeing like five minutes into the future. So like, you know, he's a synth pioneer. You know, he's one of the foundations, I think, of the synth waves genre mm-hmm. and like used all this analog synth technology to make his music. And of course, now it's everywhere. But then he sort of saw Hong Kong cinema and Wuxia and that came to, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. You know, his first movie, Dark Star, was like, and then three years later, we see I have Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, and kind of see some of the same sort of spaceship effects and things. Halloween is like one of the first and foundational slasher films, which became a massive genre in its own right. Oh, yeah. Like the first Friday the 13th, they were just like, yeah, we just wanted to try to make Halloween. Mm -hmm. That was like the whole stick. Yeah. And so he just saw what was like, oh, yeah, this is the cutting edge. Let's do that. And kind of went in there. I mean, his uh, the practical effects of the thing or state of the art for the time and sort of the high mark of practical special effects. And you can tell when he talks about his own influences that he also just has an amazing eye for like, what's going to be the next thing, even Mm -hmm. if it's way out because Mm -hmm. he talks about forbidden planet being a huge inspiration. Oh yeah. Which is a 50 sci-fi movie that had this, Probably the first electronic soundtrack in film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about it before. Yeah. Uh, okay. I thought we had. I thought yeah. we had. Okay, good. Because I remember like looking up the soundtrack for that. The score couldn't be released as actual music. It was like released as a collection of electronic sounds. Exactly. It was so far ahead in the 50s. Yeah. That most people didn't understand it as music. And he was like, oh, man, this slaps. I'm going to do this yeah. when I'm bigger. So that's like amazing looking ahead 30 years. Mm-hmm. But his tastes are still very popular. Like you mentioned the rock music, which mm-hmm. comes up a lot. He fucking loves rock. There's this really great article from Pitchfork a magazine where he talks about some of the music that he loved, like at five years intervals, like the song he liked when he was five years old, which was the Dragnet theme for the TV <laughs> show. And he didn't even have a TV. So he's just like, oh, why can't I see what's going with this music? And then if you just keep going through this article, it's just the Beatles. Hey, Jude, you know, love mm-hmm. train. Africa from Toto. He's kind of unique among a lot of these synth pioneers that he's not super esoteric. Mm-mm. You know, Boys to Men, Elton John, the Dixie Chicks, Katy Perry at 65. He liked Roar a lot. Not ashamed of his taste. He's just like, yeah, no, I like what I like. That's all I can say. That's the way to be, too. That's the way to do it. He's definitely not liking things just because they're prestigious or whatever. So. It's a real interesting blend that he he is, you know, both got this sort of blend of uh, avant-garde skill, yet, you know, proletariat taste in a lot of ways. And it made a lot of really unique movies and a lot of really unique music. It's kind of, I guess, the best summary of it. But, you know, we're obviously going to keep going in more detail. Yeah, I think I just wanted to establish how much kind of music, like what his musical tastes and background are mm-hmm. before we talk about his sound, because I do think it it does inform a lot of the music he ended up making. So if you wanted to like describe the Carpenter sound, this is something I tried to do broadly. Just Mm -hmm. what is, you know, because he's released a lot of different stuff. Mm -hmm. But I would say in general, he has really nice driving drums of some sort. Like he's really good at writing movie music. Yeah. Weird. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) He's got these awesome synth work. Mm -hmm. Like I think that's obviously as we'll talk about the the 
the most lasting thing he's probably really done is just all these he can do everything from like really nice smooth synths to these weird unsettling warbly ones like they're all over the place you know he has this very minimalist style of really just using a few instruments and then filling everything out with synths and i think that probably comes out of his early music making so for halloween as influential as that track was that whole soundtrack was written and recorded in like three days yeah he showed the movie to an exec who was like this kind of sucks it's not scary he's like oh it probably needs music i didn't budget in music <laughs> and he just he just grabbed some dude dan wyman at usc university of southern california where he was studying film and this guy's credited as a quote synth professor at usc mm-hmm. and i don't know what a synth professor is but i really want to be one <laughs> And yeah, and they just locked themselves in the room for three days. And John would be like, uh, make it sound like a keyboard. And he would. And then he would do, 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 do. Cool, we're done. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And he put the soundtrack on it and everyone loved that movie then. Yeah, it's very rare to have a director who has this level of talent in two fields. And because he knew the vision of his movie, he knew what it sounded like in his mind. And he could actually had the skills to translate that into real music, which is really unique. He also, I don't remember exactly where in which interview I read, but he did say he doesn't try to match the music exactly to the scene, but sort of have its own structure, which I think is, I think movie music often is cut too specifically to the scene mm-hmm. like there's obviously sting you know musical stings for like you know jump scares or big shots or individual pieces but like often it, it's almost like a music video where it's it's choreographed intricately and like that you know you can have the edgar Wright sort of level of sophistication but a lot of times it just doesn't work if you go sort of the middle ground so john carpenter's approach of just like the music is going to make sense on a broad level but it's not going to match exactly to every cut and every action in the scene is i think the right choice especially with horror and sci-fi because you know a lot of it is about unexpected action you know what jump scares and whatnot i found that surprising because i really thought the way his music goes with his movies that he was just recording like to picture almost but with enough insight to see where to not be so tight with it, or maybe just because he's so loose with it Mm -hmm. just by character. Yeah. But he didn't really start doing the recording to watching his own movies until like the mid eighties, I think he said. Yeah. So a lot of like the fog and Halloween and escape from New York was just him thinking about it on his own, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. But he understood the source material so well. Yeah, exactly. And that's why he could, it had its own sort of independent structure. I think that's one of the reasons why it stands out uh, as movie music, because it means you can listen to it independently. I like the idea of movie music, movie soundtracks, but that's why I can't listen to so many soundtracks on their own, because when you listen to the soundtrack on its own, it's so obviously cut to the movie that like, if it's just, you know, you just put it on to listen to, it's just like, okay, whoa, this is really dramatic. And this is really okay, this is good. Uh, Nope. Nope. All right. It's just like, calm down. I want the ambience of the movie. I don't want, you know, rewatch the movie in my mind while I'm listening to this. Mm -hmm. So again, that's, that's why we listen. That's why I can, (laughs) I can just put on the Halloween soundtrack. So I think at this point it would be good to actually talk about some albums Mm -hmm. to be a little more specific about music. If you, if you want, we, the albums that we're kind of recommending with this topic, even though it's not really an album review episode, are the two Lost Themes. Both are on Bandcamp. They released in 2015 and 2016. They're almost like cinematic jam albums because I think he just records very loosely. So it's him, his son, and 
his godson, who happens mm-hmm. to be the son of the Kinks guitarist. <laughs> yeah. And they just make music together. And the, uh, I think both the son and the godson work as composers for like television. Yeah. They're all media music people. Mm-hmm. I sort of wanted to pair these albums with this episode just because I think they are the best direct introduction to what he's trying to do. Kind of mm-hmm. everything that he's done throughout his career is on these albums, but kind of better and more modern and mm-hmm. like better sounding. I know I've been a big fan of Lost Themes 1. That came out, I think, in 2015. And I picked mm-hmm. it up. I heard about it then and I just bought it. I definitely liked that it was on Bandcamp. So I could just buy it directly as MP3s. And I've listened to it quite a bit over the years. When I visited Australia to, to see my fiance in last year in 2019, we drove through a section of the Outback at night and I just put this album on and it worked really well. I bet. Yeah, I still remember it. Yeah, seeing like roadkill kangaroos on the side of us. Oh, God, are we in a horror movie now? It got too real at points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I quite like Lost Themes. If I were to describe it in one sort of phrase, that would be synth rock because there's such a strong rock element to it. Mm-hmm. Lots of guitars. It sort of oscillates between like synthwave and rock in a really unique way, I think. You don't really see that too much. Synthwave is obviously just like, very specific on like we're doing the copying the 80s analog synth sound and then nope we're gonna have some rock yeah synth rock synth rock is the right way to describe it because basically everybody gets to contribute on pretty much every song Mm -hmm. so there's gonna be some way there's gonna be guitar in that song which is nice covers a wide range of textures and tones some of the stuff is really nice just high quality dark ambient music it's just Mm -hmm. moody and brooding and droning a little bit Mm -hmm. and then others just really adventurous rock and like really driving i say driving drums because they're like slightly ahead of the beat they really like push you forward and there's all this rock and blues guitar over it one thing i sort of was getting a little tired of on these albums is that a lot of the songs feel like they could be many short songs i think yeah because they do have these wild changes Mm -hmm. uh, in movements if you're just listening to an album they don't really feel musically motivated but I'm sure in their head when they were recording them and you were thinking about a movie, you could see a situation where those types of shifts would make sense because I think that happens in like Carpenter movies, like they live theme kind of shifts. If I remember because he's walking and then you kind of see him against like the homeless communities mm-hmm. and the music changes a little bit when he walks into town in the beginning. Yeah. So it's that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like obsidian. Uh, the second track is like eight and a mm-hmm. half minutes long. Yeah, it's like two or three songs. Yeah, it's like three songs. There's all that warbling, Mm -hmm. like great warbling synth stuff. And then, yeah, it is a journey. I like the organ music in it, too. (laughs) Like just Mm -hmm. in the middle, it's in with Mm -hmm. the brain sound effect. (laughs) It's a whole ass like short film. I don't know what it was. I wish I could have seen it. Yeah, that is a valid criticism. For me, the standout track, though, is Night, which is the one the first track I had listened to, because that's the one they made the music video for. Okay. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the music video? I have not. I've only seen the video you linked me. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, a remix, which I'll talk about in a second. But the night music video actually features Carpenter, but it's mostly like a black sports car driving through the highways around L.A. at night. And it's kind of like it looks like John Carpenter is like remote piloting something. The guy driving the car is actually a robot. And John Carpenter is in a VR headset, like controlling the robot. <laughs> And then, like, he goes to a parking garage, uh, underground parking garage, and someone also wearing a helmet 
presumably another robot, gets off a motorcycle and draws a katana. So it's like kind of like the intro of a you know alternate universe John Carpenter movie where people are using robot drones to fight each other throughout L.A., mm-hmm. which I used as the premise for a RPPR Monster of the Week game a couple of years ago after I listened to it. It's like, oh, this is so cool. That is cool. Yeah, but it is a very more the droning synthwave kind of vibe to it, which I, I, I think for me, obviously, is more more my jam than the rock elements. Not that I dislike the rock. Yeah, it is like Dark Kavinsky or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of that earlier synthwave, like 2015 synthwave. Or like Stranger Things, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. like rolling synth arpeggios. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really Drive and Stranger Things that kind of led to synthwave exploding as a genre. That sound, they're very much imitating John Carpenter. Now John Carpenter's like, well, I can do more of that shit. So (laughs) (laughs) that's probably what he said. Probably like, son, meet me in the studio. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just playing Xbox and hanging out and smoking weed. Let's yeah, let's get this shit done. (laughs) I yeah. After we talk about these albums, I'm so excited to just talk about John Carpenter since writing music (laughs) from some of these interviews. Yeah. Stick with uh, us. Yeah. No, the only other thing I want to talk about this album, though, is are the remixes. There are five remixes on the deluxe version of the album. Actually, no, six. Sorry. But there's two that are really stand out for me. One is a remix of Night with Zola Jesus singing. She's a great singer. And then, of course, Dean Hurley, who we have talked before, Twin Beaks mm-hmm. Dean Hurley, doing a remix of it. And it's, God, it's, this is such a banger. from Zola Jesus. It's yeah. really good. It's a really yeah. good remix. Yeah. The other one for me that's a standout as well is a remix of Abyss with JG Thrillwell. And JG Thrillwell is someone I'd recognize because he does the music for the Venture Brothers. I love the music of the Venture Brothers. And it's really towards the end of Abyss of the remix that really like, oh my God, I wish there was just like 10 more minutes of that part of it. It gets very bombastic. It's very cinematic. Yeah, it's just, it's just, ah, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a banger of an album, but yeah, those remixes and night, uh, especially because, yeah, I think they should have chopped this up into more songs. Like they could have taken the exact music and just made eight more tracks out of it. Oh, yeah. That would have been better because, like, it would be hard to add some of these songs into playlists because it's like, I want a synthway thing, but there's like five minutes of rock music in the middle of the song. <laughs> you, you almost just have to listen to the album. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was Lost Themes 2, which came out, I don't know, a year-ish later. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I don't have a lot of unique thoughts on this one compared to Lost Themes 1. I have one general thought that sort of both the albums inspired, but mm-hmm. we can come to that kind of at the, at the end of discussing these albums. This is more synthwave focused, I thought, than one. Like there was mm-hmm. less of a, a rock influence. And there's some really nice bits about it. There's some really variations that are like sort of changes. Like at the beginning of Angels Asylum, there's this solo acoustic guitar intro that like, ooh, I like that. That's really nice. You son of a bitch. That's exactly <laughs> <laughs> one thing I was uh, going to talk about for my, my final point. So there's definitely going to be a little sample of that one later. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like Virtual Survivor. The piano kind of reminds me of Escape from New York. Yeah, I don't know if I'm imagining that. No, I see it. Yeah. The thing that I, I think of is this is like, this is really reminding me overall of ES Posthumous and Two Steps from Hell, which makes sense because it's both, both of those groups are people who make music that sounds like it should be in a movie soundtrack and probably has later been used in a lot of movies and trailers and whatnot. They just release standalone albums, or at least ES Posthumous does. Two Steps from Hell, I think, just makes music and then hopes people license it for movies. Mm. I think that's kind of their business model. But like, if you want that movie soundtrack vibe without getting specific movie soundtracks, ES Posthumous and Two Steps from Hell are sort of like the first places to look. Yeah, ES Posthumous makes a lot of sense as soon as uh, you said it, because Carpenter talks a lot in... uh, interviews about how he likes synths because you can multi-track them and make these big orchestral Mm -hmm. sounds like he grew up with a lot of classical music and i think he's trying to recreate that fullness of sound of an orchestra in his Mm -hmm. music Uh, especially in lost themes where he finally has like a budget and time to really sit and do it and Mm -hmm. his posthumous also makes like big classical music oh yeah so that that kind of makes sense as an inspiration if you had to pick one of the two albums and you were a huge fan of his posthumous the lost themes two would actually be better Mm mm-hmm it's a fine album. I'll probably actually buy it and put it on my phone for, you know, offline listening. It, it's okay. good. Yeah, it's uh, good. It's good. And if you like Carpenter, you'll love it. If you've never heard Carpenter, I think it's a great introduction. But I wanted to kind of close uh, the discussion with one final thought, which is as I was listening to these, I think they still almost rely. It's, it's a hard thing. I, I think they're almost t- too evocative mm-hmm. in a way. And like impressions are too strong of Carpenter's previous work that it's hard to feel these songs existing independently of a movie. And I think he mm-hmm. sort of knows that. I think he knows he's a themes guy deep down, which is why they're called lost themes. Cause mm-hmm. it's like evocative of being related to movies he never got to make or whatever, but they're really not They're They're written for the album. And in some way that almost weakened it for me. So I'm going to play a few quick samples of music where I challenge you as this is playing to like, not think of movie credits. That's the opening of track four off Lost Themes 2, Angels Asylum, which we talked about earlier. And yeah, this whole song just feels like a hero 
is walking into town. Like I can't not I can't not <laughs> see credits over it. Mm-hmm. With that like little organ thing into guitar, it feels like it feels like the intro to like a TV theme, like a '90s TV show mm-hmm. where your hero is is walking over your same open credits. Yeah, and he's like a vampire or a werewolf or something. Yeah, yeah, he has to be something dark or mysterious or like a hunter. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or something and mantis uh yeah 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 <laughs> and it's just like he's just too good at writing like movie themes that it's sometimes hard is hard to think of these as just music even though i know that's unfair but mm-hmm. it's something that popped into my head while listening of just like john are you sure these are not connected to movies you never made they're too good at it i mean one of the things that's interesting we're growing about like what's influencing what I've seen this a lot in synthwave albums is how there's actually quite a few synthwave albums that are basically soundtracks for movies that don't exist. That's a very common thing mm-hmm. for synthwave mm-hmm. producers to do. And then even a lot of the, the albums that are not these concept albums are still like very clearly geared towards this cinematic influence. And it makes me wonder like this is pretty clear proof that John Carpenter in particular has been like this foundational influence. Like without if Carpenter didn't release this music for this, these movies, Synthwave would sound very different. I mean, we can think about like other movie soundtracks that have an influence like the Terminator, Terminator one and so on and so forth. But like, mm-hmm. it's just this unified body of work and Synthwave would sound very different without John Carpenter. It's all about the, the movie soundtrack, what kind of sound you're going for. Yeah, which I think pushes nicely into, you know, where's all this going is like, why does John Carpenter matter for how long will he continue to matter? Which I think will be for a very long time. Yeah. I want to take a small aside Mm -hmm. before we get into talking about Carpenter, his legacy is how much I love this man in interviews. Can I just say? (laughs) Yeah. Because we both, I think, read a bunch of interviews, try to figure out what he thinks about his relationship to music and movies and everything. And he's Mm -hmm. the best. Like there's an interview in Riot Fest. I'm not going to read it word for word because it's this long exchange. But the interviewer is like, he basically sounds like an asshole like us of like, oh, I noticed you're using a lot of 80s synth with with trance and electronica and blah, blah, blah. You know, do you ever think about like what you inspire? And he's like, man, I have no idea what you're talking about. None of that. That's all just it's all just <laughs> gibberish for me, man. I'm making music. I think a large part of his career is sort of defined by like him be like, especially when he was making movies in the heydays, a lot of his films were sort of like not critically accepted when released. Like the thing was famously a flop. Uh, mm-hmm. ET came out the same year. So like his vision of what an alien would be like visiting earth <laughs> was very different than what mainstream audiences want. And then of course, critics off all the same route. And so like, he's fair got, I, I would say a fair bit of and justified resentment oh, sure. towards institutions. Hollywood is an institution, movie critics as an institution. And so mm-hmm. like, he doesn't want to get like, oh, uh, yes, I want the theory. I'm the auteur theory, blah, 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 because he's been burned by it. And so he kind of he he's this the cynicism of like, yeah, that's all bullshit. Using theory is one thing. Talking about theory is bullshit. So mm-hmm. he's kind of taking a bold artistic stance towards, you know, uh, the yeah. proliferation of theory. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like to accept, like you said, institutions praise, which, yeah, he absolutely should like. You're talking about the thing. If you actually read the reviews for the thing, I can understand not liking the thing because you don't like horror or it's gory or -hmm. whatever. But like the review quotes, like the pool quotes from the era are just shockingly like overstating how bad it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a wild pushback to the thing. John Carver kind of disguises. He's very actually very politically motivated in a lot of ways. He very much Mm -hmm. 
power to the people, very, you know, wanting, you know, the common person to rise up. He's been very concerned with that, obviously, very explicitly in the they live. I think he sees a lot of these institutions as like bourgeois gatekeeping of like controlling culture and using the language of theory to like sort of mystify people. And so he refuses to use it because, you know, he doesn't like what it does to the conversation. You have to have an art degree in order to talk about movies, which is a bullshit idea, you know, and I think that's sort of his he's not going to help proliferate it. So, yeah, and I really also appreciate along the same lines, his like rejection of being branded or pigeonholed in any Mm -hmm. way. So, you know, his movies are a wide range of genres, Mm -hmm. really. And he just sort of made them and kind of moved on. Like he didn't really like most of the Halloweens. You know, he was very Mm -hmm. thinly involved with most of them after the first because he's like, yeah, I don't. Why are we making this into a big, dumb franchise? Like, let's just make other movies, people. If you try to ask about that stuff, he also shoots you down. So uh, another interview (laughs) I loved was this fucking under the radar where he was touring live in support of these Lost Themes albums. Mm-hmm. The interviewer is like, so for your Halloween show, did you do anything special? Because it's Halloween. He's like, no, just today. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, if you weren't touring, would you be doing anything for Halloween? Guy who directed Halloween. He's like, no, no, he'd probably be watching the Lakers. Like, he just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, this curmudgeonly thing is, yeah, yeah, well deserved at this point. Like he has nothing to prove to anyone. Everyone. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyone who doubts his his contributions to culture could just fuck off. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm just thinking about In the Mouth of Madness, you know, one of his later movies is so sophisticated. So like nuanced, like the structure of the movie, the more you think about it, the more maddening mm-hmm. it is. Mm hmm. Like it's a movie about itself. The movie you are actually watching in right now. Uh, yeah. It's so good. yeah. For like 95, it's super meta. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. He's just, yeah. Doesn't give a fuck anymore. And justifiably. And you know what? It shows because you know, like we've talked about throughout this episode, his fingerprints are, are everywhere. Mm-hmm. So to be a little more explicit, just to be clear, synth wave, as you said, does not exist without John Carpenter. And so much stuff is clearly inspired mm-hmm. by what he does. You know, like Carpenter Brute is named after John Carpenter, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's all these soundtracks. We've talked about Drive, which like Chris Martinez's soundtrack for Drive is amazing. Mm-hmm. It follows. Uh, and even though for me, Stranger Things was kind of the nail in the 80s nostalgia coffin for me, kind of, <laughs> oh. unfortunately, like I, I, it's very popular. It's, it's very good. I get it. But also it's kind of like, well, okay. Yeah. Cause that was followed by like ready player one. And then I was really done. Oh yeah. Oof, but, but stranger yeah. things has like the soundtrack and some of the other stuff just has these great little synth arpeggios that are straight out of carpenter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. A lot of synth wave uses the same kind of techniques, the same kind of structure, you know, these sort of like harmonic motifs and just like, eh, let's just vary it, go shift key, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of synthwave is stuck in the 80s because it's just like, you know, we mentioned in Hauntology or, you know, that like it's this nostalgia mode. Like, let's just reuse the exact same production method mm-hmm. of this era without really understanding. Like, that's just the way things were back then. That's just like that was state of the art. That was that was pop culture. So like and it it made it synthwave mm-hmm. made it like as a genre for a short period. Peak synthwave it. Carly Rae Jepsen did is like basically a synthwave. I mean, album. I would say it's not even over yet. Like the weekend 
That's true. The weekend is is really good at that eighties production. Yeah, and they they had a top number one that was basically a synthwave song. So mm-hmm. this year, so yeah, it's it's was it blinding lights for those yeah. who maybe don't follow. Yeah, yeah, which is a good song. Like I, I quite enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so synthwave isn't over yet. I mean, it's it's just a thing now. It's been absorbed. No, that's fair. That's that's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And it's important to note that like Carpenter's influence is explicitly stated by these people. I don't think we're just like listening to Carpenter synth and then being like, these people are also doing mm-hmm. 80s synth. Like they brought him in to narrate documentaries about synthwave. Like they know, yeah, they know who, who did this. Yeah. He did a lot of his movie stuff just like with a co-collaborator, Alan Horroth. Alan was the gearhead who understood all the synth technology. John Carpenter just went over there and just made it. So like Carpenter is kind of unique among all these synth pioneers. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know the name of any of my synths. I don't, I just, I just hit the keyboards, man, which I like because every other synth guy is like, yes, I was wanting to use this exact keyboard, which you cannot find anymore. You know, the profit five or the profit head and, and so forth. So I kind of like that. Yeah. Holworth is like such an interesting choice of collaborator. Because he mm-hmm. is a composer. He has composed first movies before, but he's also really known as a sound designer, like that soundscape, which I think is why he has so many like weird ways to generate sounds that Carpenter likes. Mm-hmm. So he did the sound design work for Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but he won the Academy Award for Hunt for Red October for best sound oh. effects. Oh, damn. So he did all of the like caterpillar drive shit in that movie mm-hmm. i think and it's just interesting because carpenter stuff is so evocative and in the place mm-hmm. that he did a lot of it with the sound design person is really interesting part of research for this episode i found a video on youtube which is a 14 minute thing from reverb that is like the synth sounds of john carpenter and they talk about the specific keyboards and effects that were used and how you can replicate them it goes into sort of the, like also the structure of it of the songs and like, you know, the five, four for uh, Halloween mm-hmm. and like in the comments, the top comment there is from Alan, just like, Hey, <laughs> glad you like, Oh yeah, no, that was really cool. You know? Yeah. I kind of like that, that he's still out there. Just like, yep, nope. Just look it up his shit uh, on YouTube commenting mm-hmm. like the rest of us. So we'll have a link to that video uh, in the show notes, of course. So beyond Synthwave, I think the other inspiration that doesn't get talked about maybe as much, or at least I couldn't find as much on it is Mm -hmm. I I think he also was a big influence on industrial music. Hmm. Yeah. And maybe this would require a little more research, but it's definitely out there. I think just because a lot of his stuff is just kind of dark and, and grimy. And I think a lot of industrial people like his music. So like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails has done covers of John Carpenter music. Okay. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but he likes all that stuff, right? So he also likes soundtracking as, you know, maybe we'll talk about Quake mm-hmm. someday. But also, I feel like, you know, you can hear Carpenter-like stuff in, I think it's something about the way his, he has these like gritty drums that hang out in the background. They just mm-hmm. feel like they show up in various industrial settings. Mm-hmm. And and maybe yeah. that's unfair on my part, but it's just, I was just thinking about it because there's just looking around, there's just so many people in the industrial scene like Trent Reznor and KMFDM who just seem to like him that I, I feel like they can't be the only ones. Yeah, no, I mean like the horror movies are definitely alike in the DNA of industrial music. So yeah, these are the movies that all the industrial artists out now grew up with. So I can definitely see that. I don't, I don't think you're off base. 
I don't think he's as like foundational and industrial as mm-hmm. like he is for Synthwave. He didn't contribute nothing. If I had spent time looking through soundtracks, I could probably find specific things from like the Halloween soundtrack or Escape from New York. That'd be like, ah, yeah, yeah, right there. Yeah. I, I don't think he's as outright industrial, but I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting when people are just really far reaching in their legacy, mm-hmm. even if they kind of don't realize it. Yeah. No, I mean, like, look at the influences movies. Like, again, he sort of like, it was a bit too early with the Hong Kong wuxia stuff, but like, boy, that we've seen that mm-hmm. influence. You know, people still reference they live when they're talking about like they're making memes out of they live for corporate culture or corporate brainwashing or whatever you want to do, both on the right and the left. Geez, the thing is still being used. Would uh, Among Us be popular if, it, if the thing did not exist? No. Yeah. And certainly like a whole generation of horror video games and art and everything character creature designs like the video game carrion obviously influenced by the thing oh yeah it it introduced a lot of concepts to pop culture that did not exist or were not really proliferated before in so many of his works i I mean i just saw a meme today that was like a clip from a scene from uh, escape from new york is like snake plissken will you rescue the president snake plissken says no (laughs) and the guy says understandable have a nice day <laughs> yeah or when you know the beginning of lockdown started there's a lot of thing memes oh yeah where he's like we're all very tired and nobody trusts each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly back to rpgs i mean dennis detwiller claims he would not have gotten into game design if it you know the thing was foundational to him and his artistic career so uh, for those that don't know him he worked on like prototype for a video game and then mm-hmm. delta green yeah, he's one of the creators of Delta Green. And I'm sure it's influenced like hundreds of other artists working in horror today. The thing is that what I'm really curious is how widespread his name, like outside of nerds and, you know, artists, like how many people actually know who John Carpenter is? How popular is he, say, compared to James Cameron? Or I, I think he's known, yeah. but probably not popular. Yeah. So my dad knows who John Carpenter is, mm-hmm. has never seen any of his movies, but is sure they're all terrible. He's like, yeah, he just makes slop, right? I'm like, all right. Oh. I was like, all right. I was like, ah, whatever. You're 80. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is this whole stigma, still stigma against genre films, especially horror. And I think it's also probably a product of my dad's just one of those people who just very much is just in the mainstream media zeitgeist kind of consensus at any time. Mm-hmm. And this stuff has never been mainstream popular. It's always been yeah, after the fact kind of rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The cult classic director. He is except for like Halloween. Halloween was a hit on release. Mm-hmm. A lot of his really good stuff, uh, just because it wasn't as big budget as, as things being made around it was mm-hmm. kind of looked down on. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the eighties movie studios still made mid to low budget movies mm-hmm. instead of going all in on summer blockbusters. So you could have interesting, you know, mid-less directors putting out stuff that wasn't as formulaic as, you know, what we see today. Good for him, I say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm glad he got away with it as long as he did. Me too. I'm going to end this conversation with the last amazing John Carpenter quote. When you think about how much he's inspired, he was asked, do you like being such an inspiration, having such a legacy? And he said, I'm flattered by this. But there were also tribute bands to the scores from like Sonic the Hedgehog and Mega Man video games. So I try to keep this stuff in perspective. Thank you all for listening. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode. Our next episode actually is going to be another topic episode. We are going to talk about, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, Quake and, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, and uh, the influence of the Quake 1 soundtrack. How it is haunted AF. That's so good. Yeah, it is. One of the few video game soundtracks I have listened to probably dozens of times. I look forward to listening to it again. So I am at Russ Payton on Twitter. Of course, Burke is at Burke McBurkinson on Twitter, and we are at Night Clerk Radio. We also have a Facebook page, and so feel free to tweet at us. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please rate and review us on your uh, podcasting app of choice. Tell your friends, family, your enemies, you know, anybody really about Night Clerk Radio if you liked it, especially this episode. You know, help us spread, like, the thing in the polar base, you know. Does that work? All right. Uh... <laughs> we'll uh stay haunted thank you all for listening